Well, this morning we're in Luke chapter 20. We're going to look at that in just a moment. But uh, there was this guy who was, there was kind of a, uh, I don't know, some kind of affair going on. And uh, there was a big commotion uh, in this fair. Uh, And people were very concerned about this little boy. And uh, the man looked, he heard what was going on. He he was told that a, a little boy had swallowed a penny. And he was choking. He was gasping for air. And people were trying to help him. And they couldn't help him. And so this gentleman, he runs to uh, the, this little boy and he does the Heimlich re- removal on this little guy. And uh, as he does the Heimlich remo- removal thing, uh, out, am I pronouncing that right? Re- re- maneuver, re- maneuver, thank you. <laughs> out pops this quarter. And uh, the mom, she's... She's so grateful and she's so impressed by what this this uh, man was able to do for her son. She asked, are you a doctor? And she's, he said, no, I'm not a doctor. I work for the Internal Revenue Service. <laughs> now, I told, told a joke similar to that uh, several weeks ago. I'm just wondering how many versions of this story is out there. But it fits again with our message this morning. Uh, last, last time I told a story of that nature, we were looking at Zacchaeus and Jesus's encounter with the tax gatherer. But uh, this morning, uh, we're looking at the government and God and what Jesus says our responsibility is with both, uh, both those uh, institutions, both those um, things that God has established. And as we're in Luke chapter 20, uh, Jesus continues to be hounded. And, um, and Jesus is not backing down from his enemies. And particularly in uh, chapter 20, um, Jesus's authority has been questioned. And uh, they've asked Jesus a question, trying to back Jesus into a corner. And Jesus asks them a question in return. And because of Jesus' question, the, uh, his enemies were silenced. But, uh, and so we see that in the first part of chapter 20. But then Jesus goes on and talks about a parable of the wicked, um, the wicked vineyard keepers. And as he's telling this story... Uh, his enemies know exactly who Jesus is talking about and they become angry. And then Jesus goes on and he looks at uh, Psalm chapter 118, a messianic Psalm talking about the promises of the Messiah to come. And Jesus is saying, this is me. The, this, these, this passage of scripture is referring to me. And so that brings us to verse 19. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 26 this morning. And the Bible says this. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said. 
so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they ask him, Teacher, we know that you speak speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. And they were silented again, just as we see in verse 8 of chapter 20. These enemies of Jesus were wanting to beat Jesus at his own game. Jesus has already asked, asked them a question that they couldn't answer. And so they wanted to put Jesus in a similar situation. And the Bible says that there were two groups of people that, uh, that came to Jesus. Now, if you want to look more at this passage of Scripture or understand it more, you can go also to Matthew chap- or Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. And Mark describes to two different groups that approached Jesus. One were the Pharisees and the other were the Herodians. Now, we've learned a lot about the Pharisees going uh, through the book of Luke, but the Pharisees were the religious conservatives, okay? They were the ones that were opposed to big government. If they were those today, they would probably be those who, who watch Listen, uh, Fox News or Fox Radio. I mean, these are the religious conservatives of Jesus' day. Then there were the Herodians. The Herodians were the liberals of of Jesus' day. They embraced the Roman government. They were in favor of big government. And the Herodians today would probably be a group of people who would watch MSNBC or or CNN, but uh, they were the liberals of Jesus' day. And these two groups hated each other. They, the Herodians despised the Pharisees. Pharisees despised the Herodians. But what brought them together, what made them a team, was that they hated Jesus even more intensely. And because of their hatred for Jesus, they, they decided to join forces. That they needed to craft something, they needed to do something that would back Jesus into a corner. And so the Bible says in verse 21 that they pretended to be sincere. And they used flattering words. And uh, flattering words wasn't good in this passage of Scripture. Flattery is, uh, is not a good character quality. Uh, <clears throat> gossip 
and flattery are very similar. They're, they're the mirror opposites of each other. And gossip, gossip is saying things behind a person's back that you would never tell them to their face. But flattery is saying things before their face that you would never say behind their back. And so here were these enemies of Jesus coming to Christ with um, flattering words. And, um, and Jesus is on to them. Jesus knows um, their motives. He's not impressed by his flattery words. Their flattery words. He knows what the word says about flattery. And you have some passages in your handout this morning. But Proverbs chapter 29, verse 5 says this. A man who flatters, flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. And that's what these enemies were wanting to do. They were wanting to trap Jesus. They were laying a net before him, hoping for him to be backed into a corner so that they, that he would be trapped. And so Jesus knows what's coming next. He listens, he hears these flattery words, and then here comes the question. The question is, is it right in verse 22 for us to be pay taxers, taxes to Caesar or not? Is it right, Jesus, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And in asking that question, this was, this was a lose-lose situation for Jesus. Either way he answered, if he answered yes, it would go against him. If he answered no, it would go against him. And for the Pharisees, they were really hoping that Jesus would say yes, that it is lawful, it is good to pay taxes to Caesar. And the reason why they wanted Jesus to say yes, because they wanted to let the, the other Jews know that Jesus wasn't one of them. I mean, he was in favor of big government. Uh, he didn't mind that Caesar's image was on the coin of, uh, of, uh, that the, the Jews had in their pocket. If you looked at the, the coin of, uh, of, that the Jews had, the poll that was used for the poll tax, uh, that, that, that coin had Caesar's image. And on that, that coin, it said, son of the divine Augustus. This, this was equated to idolatry, idol worship. And if Jesus says yes, that he's in favor of big government, he wants the Jews to support the Roman government, well, the Pharisees are going to take that and they're going to spread it with the Jews and they're going to say, Jesus isn't one of us. And so they're waiting, waiting with bated breath. They have their, their Twitter accounts open and they're going to tweet to everybody what Jesus' answer to this question is. For the Herodians, they want Jesus to say no, that it's not appropriate to pay a tax to Caesar. Because if, they, if Jesus says no, then Jesus, they're going to accuse Jesus 
of being a hypocrite. He's opposed. He's he's not for the little guy. He's not for big government. And that Jesus is trying to begin a start a revolution against the Roman government. And so the Herodians are wanting Jesus to say no. But yes or no, Jesus is going to lose. And so hearing that question, um, verse 23 says that Jesus has perceived their craftiness. He's between a rock and a hard place. What's he going to do now? Well, Jesus says in verse 24, someone give me a denarius. He didn't have a denarius on him, but one of them had a denarius. And he looks at that denarius, that silver coin, and uh, a denarius was about uh, worth about a day's wage. And he looks at that coin, and he asks the question, whose image is on this coin? And the obvious answer was Caesar. And Jesus says this, and this is the this is the proverbial soundbite that people have repeated for two thousand years. Jesus said this. He said, "Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's." And so the question for us today is what does this mean for us as Christ followers? It really means two things. We live in two worlds. We live in the world of the seen and the world of the unseen. And God expects us as his followers to be citizens of both worlds. How are we to live out our citizenship in both those worlds? When Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, he means that for the seen world, the state is a valid institution. The state is a valid institution. Church, as Christians, we have a civic duty According to scripture, when it comes to government, to help pay for that government, and that is through taxes. Jesus is telling us in this passage of scripture, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. We live in the United States of America. It's not free living in this country. Amen? And it's getting more and more expensive to live in this country. But in living in this country, we give taxes to help pay for the things that we enjoy in in our nation. God expects us to pay for those things. Not only are we to pay um, for this institution, But according to scripture, we are to pray for this institution. We are to pray for the leaders of our country. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
And then number three, we are to obey our leaders. We're to pray for them and knowing that God has uh, put them over us to protect us, to lead us. And he expects us as the people of God to obey our leaders. Understand when Jesus is saying these things, when Paul is writing these things later on in the New Testament, they're being written in times where the government isn't godly. The government doesn't have a fear of God. And there's a lot of evil going on in these governments. But the Bible says that God has put them into leadership over us. And only in the mystery of his sovereignty can we, by faith, trust him and know that God has a plan even through evil leaders. Paul says in Romans chapter 13 that every leader around the world has been put there by a sovereign God. Nothing happens by accident. And whether you live in a land where there's religious freedom or whether you don't, the Bible says we have a responsibility to pay, help pay for that government, to pray for that government, and obey that government. Jesus, in this passage of Scripture, in verse 25, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And then he goes on to say, to give to God what belongs to God. What does that mean? Well, it would be really easy for me this morning to talk about the tithe and that God expects us to give to kingdom work and that God expects us to support the local New Testament church and the ministries that we're accomplishing here at Emmanuel. But I want you to know this morning, I'm not going to talk about the tithe this morning. I believe what Jesus is conveying here this morning is far bigger than the tithe. What is Jesus saying when he says, give to God what belongs to God? Second, Christ's followers answer to a higher authority. Yes, we must give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but to God what belongs to God. This is the unseen world. And as Christ followers, we answer to a higher authority than the seen, the seen world. God is far bigger than Caesar. When Jesus says give to Caesar and to give to God, Jesus isn't conveying the idea that Caesar and God are equals. No. God is bigger than Caesar. And when it comes to Caesar, 
When it comes to the governments of this world, the governments have limits. And many governments like to abuse those limits and coerce followers of Christ to do things that God would not have them do. And we see this in in Scripture uh, throughout the Bible. In Daniel chapter 6, Nebuchadnezzar, he decreed that uh, he was going to set up uh, uh, a statue of himself. And when uh, the trumpet sounded, everybody was, was to fall down and, and uh, worship and pray to uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel heard that. And Daniel decided that's not, that's not who he was going to worship. That's not who he was going to pray to. And Daniel wasn't willing to cross that line. Go to Acts chapters 4 and 5 and the apostles after Jesus is resurrected and Jesus is ascended to the right hand of the Father. Uh, Pentecost has taken place. And uh, the news of uh, Christ and what he's done in his resurrection, people are, are following him. The gospel's being proclaimed. And the religious leaders of, the, of Jerusalem want to silence the apostles. And what do the apostles say? You know, <clears throat> this may be your desire, but the apostles say we serve a higher God. We have a higher calling and we must obey him. And scripture is telling us that government has its limits. And as Christians, we must resist earthly authority when that authority is asking us to do something unethical or immoral or something that goes against our conscience as Christians. If government is asking us to to go against one of those three things, we have a responsibility to answer to God rather than Caesar. Because church, Caesar is not our God. Jesus looks at the coin and he says, whose image is on the coin? coin. And they say, Caesar's. When he, when he talked about image, I mean, the people's minds immediately went back to Genesis chapter 1. What does the Old Testament, what does Genesis chapter 1 talk about when God created us? How were we created? In his image. When Jesus looked at the coin, he said, whose image is on this coin? It was obviously Caesar's. Where's God's image? God's image is on you and I. The Bible says that we are created in the image of God. The word image in the Septuagint, the Greek, is the word icon. We are God's icon. 
And as God's icon, we bear his image. We represent who he is. God says, give to Caesar what is due Caesar and give to God what is God's. Church, we have a responsibility to bear the image of God in our community. We represent him. The church, the church is to be the conscience of the society. This is what Martin Luther King said. The church is not the master of the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. Let's talk about a current event that took place this last week. I don't know if you've heard about what's happening in in Houston. Um, Houston, Houston is the largest city in the United States that has a homosexual mayor, a lesbian mayor. And the mayor and the city council I'm not sure when that took place, uh, adopted an ordinance that um, any cross-dresser, any man dressed like a woman would be permitted to use a women's restroom in any business in the city of Houston. And if you were a business that not, did not provide that opportunity for a male cross-dresser, you could be sued. This was adopted by the city council. Well, there were a group of pastors in Houston that uh, obviously uh, did not agree with that ordinance, and so they put together um, a signature drive, and they needed a little over 17,000 signatures Uh, in order for this ordinance uh, to get on the ballot for the city of Houston, they collected almost 50,000 signatures. Well, the uh, city officials, they looked at a lot of those signatures and they decided that a lot of those signatures were ineligible and so they didn't have enough signatures to get on on a ballot for the city to vote. And so... um, so this group was suing uh, city officials. Well, during this lawsuit, and this came out this week, the mayor of Houston wanted to take the five pastors who were uh, really pushing this signature drive, and she subpoenaed, or the the attorneys of the city, or the the, the attorneys who were doing this pro bono, Uh, subpoenaed these five pastors uh, asking, demanding that all emails, uh, sermons uh, pertaining to this ordinance, the signature drive, 
be turned over to the city attorneys so that they can um, build their case against these people who are, are suing uh, the city of Houston. And obviously they're refusing. These pastors are standing for what the word of God says. They are being God's image bearers. They are being the conscience of the city. And now they are being persecuted for doing what is right. The mayor said this week that, uh, listen, this is a political issue. And because the pastors have made it a political issue, their, their sermons and all of their communications are fair game. Church, it's not a political issue. It's a moral issue. And we have a responsibility as God's people to stand up for what is right and what is wrong. Now, there's some people might ask, well, you know, why, why shouldn't the pastors just turn over these documents? I mean, I mean, wouldn't it be good for city officials to read their sermons, to know where they're coming from? You know, doesn't the Bible say to... You know, if, uh, if, if uh, you know, people are persecuting us, that we need to turn the other cheek, we need to go the extra mile. Why is it important that uh, we not give in to this subpoena? And the reason why we shouldn't give in to this subpoena is, number one, we have a First Amendment right. There is the freedom of speech. There is the freedom of religion in this country. And that's being trampled right now. And if we were to cave in and just you know, let the bullies have their way, we will become the persecutors of our children's children one day. Not only are we standing up for our rights, but we are standing up for the rights of our children and our children's children down the road. Folks, religious freedom is a blessing that many people in this world do not enjoy today. Did you know that 76% of the world's population lives in highly restricted areas of religious freedom? 5.3 billion people do not have the freedom of religion. Many of those live in fear of their lives because they're Christians. Research shows that religious persecution spawns civic division, conflict, and extremism, while religious freedom, including the ability to evangelize, promotes civic stability, a wide array of democratic freedoms, and empowerment of vulnerable groups. 
Scripture speaks a lot about religious freedom and how important religious freedom is. It promotes democracy. It promotes stability. So the the First Amendment right is important, but that's a secondary issue to a primary issue. And the primary issue is the church standing for the word of God. We are God's icons. We are his image bearers and we are to speak the truth. And we are to speak the truth in love. And sometimes when we speak the truth in love, it doesn't come across as love because People don't want the light to be shined on his darkness. But it's still the truth. And as God's people, we need to stand for what is right. Church, these are precarious days. A few years ago, we we wouldn't have seen something like this coming in the city of Houston. There's a Christian couple in Idaho. I was just reading that this morning. They have a wedding chapel. Idaho, uh, the Supreme Court has uh, turned down um, um, what Idaho had had, uh, spoke out against, um, same-sex marriage. Well, same-sex marriage is now legal in Idaho. Well, this Christian couple that owns this wedding chapel has been told if they don't marry homosexual couples that they will be serving jail time. Persecution is on our doorstep, church. And we need to be prepared. It's only going to get worse. And Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. How do we apply this? Well, number one, we have a responsibility to pay, to pray, and to obey as long as it's not immoral, unethical, or goes against our conscience. Number two, we need to vote. Are you registered to vote? Tomorrow is the deadline for new voter registration so that you will be el- eligible to vote in November. I want to encourage you to be registered to vote and then to be informed on how to vote. Uh, All of of you who are registered, you uh, have received your sample ballot. I want to encourage you to come this Wednesday night at 6 o'clock. At 6 o'clock, we're going to show a 30-minute DVD by uh, Dr. James Kennedy. 
and then we're going to go through the sample ballot. And we're going to educate you on the issues right here in this room. You know, one of the issues that I've always struggled with is who to vote vote for when it comes to the judges. I didn't know anything about these judges. You know, and it's just eeny, meeny, miny, moe. That's wrong. And we have information that will help you to elect the judges who, who are qualified to uh, serve in those positions. So this Wednesday night at 6 o'clock, I want to encourage you to be here uh, for that important time together. And then number three, we need to stand, church, for what God says is true. Those things that are going to bring blessing and peace rather than chaos and confusion. I know that in the state of California, um, same-sex marriage is the law of the land. The church is still going to bring chaos and confusion to those individual households. It's not going to lead to life and peace. And even though we may not agree with that lifestyle, guess what? We need to love and we need to be there when to pick up the pieces when those families fall apart. And then finally, we can't afford to be afraid. Even if it may cost you your very life. Render to God what is God's. We are his image bearers. We are his icons. It's far more than money. It's our whole lives. God doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. And when he has your heart, he has you. Be his image bearer. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I pray that we would be true to you. That we would render to you what is yours. God, your word says in Romans chapter 12 that our lives are to be an act of worship unto you, that our lives are to be a living sacrifice. And oftentimes as a living sacrifice, God, we want to crawl off that, crawl off that altar. Help us to stay on that altar. Help, help us to be your image bearers. Your icon. 
whether it be in the furnace or on the mountaintop. God, may we be true to you. You have richly blessed this nation over 200 plus years. But God, our leaders are moving the boundaries. And churches have silenced themselves. God, forgive us. Thank you for these five pastors in Houston who are standing for what is right. God, I pray that you would strengthen their faith, that you would strengthen their churches. We know that the attacks of the enemy are intense. And God, the enemy is trying to discourage them. God, may they find refuge and strength your word, God, that you would empower them through your Holy Spirit. I pray that, God, your word would prevail in the city of Houston in the days ahead. God, help us as a church to be ready for the persecution that's going to come our way. May our lives be on the altar continually. Would you ask God to strengthen you? To do what's right? In love and compassion? People might not understand your motives, but that's all right. You keep taking the high road. Jesus didn't attack. He wasn't ugly back. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, not saying a word. totally trusting his Father. Thank you, Father, for this time of worship. Lord, I pray if there's people in this service this morning who are struggling, who need prayer, that, Lord, that they would take the time for elders to pray with them during this time of worship. May you be glorified. May you encourage your children. In Jesus' name, would you stand with me, please?